welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Sigal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Hey, legal leaders, as a heads up, we are deviating from our regular episodes these next two weeks to bring you some important industry insights. This week, I'm sharing with you the entire discussion from Lawline CLE, Navigating Client Trust Accounts in a Challenging Banking Climate, where we have three incredible lawyers who lead and the CEO of Nota Bank weighing in on what lawyers need to know in light of the failures of two medium-sized banks in the same week in March 2023. If you want to get CLE and learn about this important subject at the same time, stop right here and go over to lawline.com to watch the course. For any of you that's already got that CLE covered, listen in because this is content you're not going to want to miss. Next week, I'll be sharing my coverage of NALP's annual education conference in Vancouver, where I will be podcasting in person with leading lawyers in the learning and professional development industry. So let's get into Lawline's navigating client trust accounts in a challenging banking climate right now. Welcome to this program on navigating client trust accounts in a challenging banking climate. My name is Bob Ambrogi. I write about legal tech and legal practice out of my blog, Law Sites, and I'm going to be serving as the moderator today. And really, the genesis of this program is events that have happened in the news recently, in particular, the failures of two medium-sized banks in the same week. Those failures have raised significant alarms, I think, for businesses of all kinds, but for attorneys in particular, they raise critical questions with regard to management of client trust accounts and the steps attorneys can take to avoid risk happening to them or their clients. The fact of the matter is that banks' failures do happen. Between 2001 and 2023, there have been 563 bank failures And I don't know how often you stop to think about what would happen in your practice if there was a failure tomorrow at the bank where you maintain your client accounts. You have to ask yourself, should you have foreseen that failure? Is there actions you could have taken beforehand? And what do you do once a failure happens? What's the risk to you and your clients? And most importantly, what steps can you take today to minimize any future risk to you or your clients? So today we're going to explore these questions and others with a panel of experts in banking, legal ethics, and law practice management. We're going to talk about how the banking laws apply, banking requirements with regard to IOLTA accounts, FDIC limits. We're going to review lawyers' obligations to place client funds in approved accounts, what kinds of accounts are typically acceptable. We're going to talk about some of the risks, poor choices or good choices might make in identifying a bank and choosing a bank from an ethics and compliance point of view. And again, talk about some of the mitigation actions that may be available to you. So before we jump into the substance of it, let me begin by introducing today's panelists. Let me begin by introducing Jordan Turk, who is an attorney and legal technology advisor at Smokeball. Jordan, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm a practicing family law attorney down in Texas, but I have probably an unhealthy obsession with trust accounts and talking about it, which is very sad. I don't know what that says about my life. So very excited to be here today to talk about it, something that I'm truly passionate about. Thanks, Jordan. 
And next up is Jonathan Grab, who's the Ethics Counsel at the Florida Bar. Yes, I am the Director of the Ethics and Advertising Department for the Florida Bar, yes, also known as the Ethics Counsel. And I've been with the Florida Bar for a bit over nine years now and in this position for about a year and a half. During that time, I've taken literally thousands of calls on the ethics hotline and responded to dozens of ethics inquiries. And oftentimes, yes, those have to do with trust accounting. And so, you know, that is what brings me here today. And hopefully I can provide some helpful advice. Thanks, Jonathan. And finally, Paul Grebian is the co-founder and CEO of NOTA. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Bob, and looking forward to the discussion and those very interesting times. I've been in a fintech and a banking space for the last 20 years. And most recently for the last four years, I am the CEO of NOTA by M&T Bank, which is a vertical bank focused on attorneys and law firms. So happy to be here. Thanks, Paul. Just to let you know what to expect in terms of what's going to happen over the next 55 minutes or so that we have left in this program, we're going to go through some of the obligations and responsibilities attorneys have with regard to their banking and trust accounts. And then after we do that, we're going to engage in a little bit more of a roundtable discussion on some of the ways to minimize your risk, some of the issues to be thinking about going forward from here. So to kick it off, I'm going to turn things over to Jordan, who is going to talk a little bit about some of the responsibilities lawyers have with regard to choosing a bank and creating and managing an IOLTA account. So Jordan, take it away. Thanks, Rob. All right. So we're just going to do a little bit of basics, a refresher from your MPRE or professional responsibility class. So just come with me on this journey. <laughs> but we'll start off with what your IOLTA is, right? So everybody knows this is your interest on lawyer trust account called different things by different states. As Jonathan knows in Florida, it is not called an IOLTA. I'm sure he'll go into that, but essentially it's an account that you use to store your client's property or to store third-party property. So it is not yours yet. You have not earned those funds. Therefore, you must protect them and hold them in this account. So it's going to be different from your operating account. And each and every state bar, which I'm sure Jonathan will go into, has their own rules with regard to these trust accounts and what you can and cannot do with them. Everybody should be very familiar with Rule 1.15 because we all must adhere to it. And it's actually one of the uh, biggest offenders when it comes to grievances that are filed against attorneys. It's usually, I would say, 90% of the time from what I've seen when attorneys have some issues. It's usually pertaining to trust account violations, specifically 1.15, which essentially just says that a lawyer needs to hold the property of clients or third persons separate and apart from the lawyer's own property. We all know this, but for some reason, a lot of attorneys get in trouble about this, but that's really the main one for the purposes of what I'm going to talk about here. And Jonathan will go into more detail, obviously, with the Florida State Bar and what they do, but essentially just keeping those funds safe and pretty much every single state bar will require you to deposit funds with regard to your IOLTA into an FDIC insured bank. So what do we mean by this? How does it play out? So the FDIC, obviously we're all familiar with, but it stands for the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Say that five times fast, <laughs> but essentially what happens is banks pay premiums to the FDIC, and in return, they get this insurance coverage, obviously. So the current limit for this insurance coverage is $250,000. And before, actually, this didn't apply to credit unions. So attorneys stayed away from credit unions with regard to that. But in 2014, a law was passed that said, hey, no, actually, this has to apply to both banks and credit unions. So if you were on the fence about credit unions or anything like that, or wondering if there was coverage, there is, in fact, coverage as of 2014. But for attorneys especially, and what I really want to point out with regard to FDIC insurance coverage, the $250,000 cap 
is per client. It's not per your trust account. So as long as your trust account is qualified as a fiduciary account, which the vast majority of them are because you are in fact a fiduciary according to pretty much every state bar in the United States, that's going to be $250,000 per client. So not just your trust account. So if you're kind of freaking out and wondering, hey, I have $500,000 total in my trust account. Oh my gosh, it's $250,000 more. You know, it's per client. It's not for your entire trust account. So just something to keep in mind. And then a possible but rare issue that I want to point out that you should look out for is if your client banks at the same institution in which you have your IOLTA or your trust account, there could be a possible issue with that because that $250,000 cap is per bank. So if you're looking at depositing $250,000 of your client's money, say it's a real estate transaction, something like that, and you're looking at putting that into your Wells Fargo trust account, but then turns out your client also banks there personally and has another $200,000 on deposit, well, that's problematic for the client because that could actually hinder their recovery in those funds if that bank were to fail. So. Something to keep in mind maybe as you go along, as you're in your practice for family law attorneys, it's pretty easy because I understand what their estate looks like, even just from a regular, you know, initial client consultation. So it would be easier for me to understand where all their money is kept. But if, you, if especially if you're doing real estate things like that, where a lot of money is coming into play with regard to that trust account, and it just sits there for a while, it's one of those things maybe I would start incorporating into my client consultations and asking them about. All right. So as far as ethical duties go, and what I'm most concerned about is ethical issues, because I am a paranoid person just by nature. And I feel like attorneys are in general, it's just a constant state of anxiety, wonder if, wondering if you're going to be sued, or if there's, you know, a grievance going to be filed against you. It's really fun. And now you have to worry about, oh, what happens if my bank fails? So it's just another layer of stress that's just wonderful for us. So the questions that you might have would be, if I hold more than $250,000 on behalf of a client in my trust, do I have an obligation to minimize that client's risk in the event that the bank fails, right? Because I'm now over that $250,000 cap. So what's my liability? What does my bar say? Is there any other implications that you know of? And then also, what about client funds that are unrelated to a trust account? What if I'm just holding them on behalf of a third party? What if it's a real estate transaction? Things like that. Is there any case law or guidance on ethical obligations in the event that I exceed this threshold? Because here's the deal. We're not really worried about if money stays under that $250,000 cap, right? Because no matter what, the FDIC, the regulators are going to step in if that bank fails and they're going to meet that insurance minimum, right? They're going to meet that $250,000. So as attorneys, you're really just worried about, for one, am I choosing the right bank? And then two, am I depositing more than that $250,000 cap? And do I have an obligation to minimize risk for my client with that? And then third, is there any standard by which attorneys are scrutinized when it comes to selecting a bank? So there's minimal cases on this. A lot of them are older, but there is one that's from 2005. It's a New York case. It's Bazinet P. Klug. Really quick, the background of it is that you have attorney riser. He acts as an escrow agent for Klug in this case. And it's a real estate transaction. There's two New York City apartments right by Central Park. Lovely. I wish I could be those people. Well, maybe not Klug, as you'll find out. But, but uh, what ends up happening is attorney Reiser goes, deposits $1.45 million and then $1.2.8 million as down payments. And he goes and he deposits it into the New York branch of the Connecticut Bank of Commerce. And that's also where Reiser had his trust account. So he understands this. He likes this bank. There you go. However, before the transaction concluded, and unbeknownst to all of the parties in this case, 
CBC actually closed and the FDIC was named as the receiver. Super great. And so Bazinet, that's where he comes in, is pissed. And he is one of the buyers in this case. So he sues to actually recover the down payment of his money. And then he also says, you know what, Attorney Reiser, I fully believe that you committed malpractice. You know why? Because you deposited those funds and you didn't do it so that they would be under that threshold that the FDIC covers. And or at a minimum, you didn't take other steps to protect these funds that you knew were in excess of the FDIC cap. So he's pissed. <laughs> but the key takeaway of it is the court said, hey, we're going to accept uh, Attorney Reiser's motion to dismiss on this because it was a cross claim by Bassinet. And they said, look, to prevail in a malpractice action, the plaintiff has to show that the attorney failed to exercise the degree of care, skill, and diligence commonly possessed and exercised by a member of the legal profession. And they said there has been no allegation that this attorney violated any state, any statute, any regulation. And also, there is no requirement imposed by law that an attorney escrow agent, that he has to place these escrow funds in an account that's fully insured by the FDIC. And there was no allegations that Reiser knew anything about this bank closing. And so they really said, hey, the proximate cause of Kluge's injury, if any, was CBC's unforeseen demise. So that was dismissed against attorney Reiser, but that's essentially what this court held was right. This was an unforeseen issue. There was no allegation that Reiser had done anything wrong with regard to this bank because he had no idea. So that's how that case was decided. And then there's a Florida ethics opinion that Jonathan will go into, I'm sure. <laughs> but essentially what they found there was, oh yes, this lawyer kept routinely several hundred thousand dollars in his trust account over the cap, right? And so the lawyer wanted to know, hey, do I have any legal liability since I'm holding this over the threshold? And the bar said, there's no ethical requirement to divide these trust funds, but you have to act prudently. So prudently would be the key word there. What that means, it's almost like the law school reasonable man situation, right? So case law would be instructive, ethical opinions would be instructive, but that's the standard by which Florida has a that's the standard that they promulgated with that. And then there's also a South Carolina ethics opinion, 08-10, where they said the attorney is under no obligation to provide insurance over and above the maximum available by the FDIC, and that the lawyer only has the obligation to take reasonable steps to protect the client's funds. So we have unforeseen circumstances that was noted in the uh, Bazinet case, we have that you have to act prudently with the Florida bar. For South Carolina, it says you have to take reasonable steps. Connecticut has an interesting one. So Connecticut Bar Opinion 91-02, uh, this was in 1991. And this was where an attorney had a question about whether they had any ethical obligations or responsibilities if a client's fund exceeded the threshold limit set by the FDIC. And the short answer with that is no. However, Connecticut went into detail. So they said, hey, like most jurisdictions, we require that fiduciaries act as a prudent person. So that sounds familiar from Florida, right? And they said, you have to act as a prudent person would have in handling trust properties and funds. Okay, but what does that actually mean? We don't really know. <laughs> but it did go deeper. And it said, Connecticut commentary to one of their ethical rules said that you are held to a professional fiduciary standard as an attorney which implies some sort of special skill or more facilities greater than the prudent person, which you must use in managing client funds. So it goes a step above and says, not only do you have to act prudently, but since you have to act in a professional fiduciary standard, it's a step above. What that actually means though, again, 
not really laid out <laughs> and not listed, certainly. But they go on to say that we assume that the prudent person would take advantage of FDIC insurance coverage whenever it is practical to do so. So they're basically saying, we understand that they exceeded the limits, but they did use an FDIC insured bank and it was practical for this attorney to be able to do so. And they said that there was no ethical implication or issue with this attorney doing that. And another case that they cited was actually from the Supreme Court. I know y'all are just loving this case law talk, <laughs> but uh, it's U.S. v. Howard. It's a case from the 1930s, which is interesting, right? Because it's Great Depression era. Obviously, a lot of banks were also failing at that point, too. And I think, you know, clearly you're a professional fiduciary, right? And so in an age of bank failures, you kind of have to exercise this due care standard and you need to be careful in selecting banks with which you deposit your funds. But in US v. Howard, the court held that it was actually a jury question, very interesting, on whether a bankruptcy trustee had breached his duty of care. So what he did was he deposited a number of trustee accounts in excess of the surety bond that was posted by the bank. So this was all above board. It was pursuant to banking laws at the time. However, the trustee knew of several runs on that bank and the bank subsequently failed. So the issue here is that it's not so much of an unforeseen circumstances that was talking about in the Bazinet case, right? Instead, now it's, he knew that there were several runs on the bank. For those unfamiliar with what a run is, it's when everybody goes all at once and tries to withdraw all their money from that bank all at once, essentially, or all at, you know, contemporaneously. And so he knew that. And so the Supreme Court actually sent it back and said, uh-uh, we're not dismissing this. This is actually a jury question. So something to keep in mind as you go forward and you're asking yourself, okay, there's not really any codified standards. There's no statutes. However, a lot of ethics opinion and case law exists saying, hey, it's kind of fuzzy, but there is some sort of standard by which you have to adhere to. And a lot of it is reasonable, prudent, professional fiduciary standards. But I will kick that back to Bob. All right, Jordan, thanks so much. You know, I think it's really interesting, the whole foreseeability question, because in a way that's the $250,000 question, I guess, uh, here in terms of what is foreseeable, when is a bank failure foreseeable, and are there steps that a business or an attorney or a law firm can be taking to anticipate that kind of a situation? I just want to see if Paul or Jonathan, did you have any comments or anything about the issues that Jordan just talked about? So first of all, great summary, Jordan. Thank you so much. I love the fact that when you can take complicated issues and really distill them to simple terms for everyone to understand. And I think that's ultimately what it comes down to. I think it's very unreasonable for most people, including attorneys, to figure out soundness of any bank's balance sheet. Even for some people in the industry, that's a fairly complicated task to do, and certain teams work on it, and ultimately don't foresee some of those bank challenges from happening. But I think ultimately what it comes down to is that you need to be able to first make sure that your IOTA accounts are properly set up and you're actually dealing with a bank or a credit union that has experience in handling IOTA funds. That's step one. Step two is making sure that you maximize your FDIC coverage. How do you do that? Well, it's FDIC coverage for your clients, which you have the fiduciary responsibility for. So I think, you know, if I was to do it or advise a friend or a colleague or anyone really on best practices, and really is really make sure that you've got those funds per beneficiary in per account. So for example, Jordan had mentioned that it's across, you know, if they already have funds with that bank, right? So it's basically, if those are personal funds and uh, they are the only beneficiary, then it's 250. 
But if it's personal funds and it's their partner or a spouse, then it's 500 across all types of accounts. So for personal accounts, you get 250 per beneficiary. And then for business accounts, you get 250,000 per beneficiary. In a case of a law firm's funds, if you have two partners slash beneficiaries, then it's 500,000. If you have three, 750, et cetera. So it's important to understand those thresholds and make sure that you have all the right beneficiaries properly assigned at the time of creation of those accounts. And then step three, in the event that you are over those 250 per beneficiary thresholds, I would recommend is actually to set up additional accounts with another financial institution. I think that's the most sound advice I can offer. And you know, I'm curious to see if Jordan and Jonathan would agree with me. I believe that's the, the responsible thing that as a fiduciary, you can do for both your clients' funds as well as your own funds. Very helpful, Paul. Jonathan, is there anything you wanted to comment on what we've been talking about so far? No, uh, just I agree with Paul and Jordan. I really appreciate her presentation. And you'll probably see that a lot of my presentation is going to hit a lot of the same notes. And that balance between what is reasonably prudent to protect and assure that FDIC coverage versus what is the necessary liquidity that you need to facilitate that client's needs. Because there are gonna be times where you have a transaction where you're talking about tens of millions of dollars and having a $40 million transaction and 160 trust accounts with various different institutions, you're just not gonna be able to get that to closing in a reasonable way. And so there is gonna be that balance of understanding the client's needs versus again, assuring that FDIC coverage. And that's really where you get back to that reasonably prudent standard where you just try and act based on the best information that you have at the time. That's great. Why don't you take it away? Thank you. So again, I am Jonathan Grab. I am with the Florida Bar, the Ethics Council. I work with the Ethics Department. Uh, for those individuals who happen to be members of the Florida Bar or authorized to practice law in Florida, if you have any questions, of course, you can contact us at 1-800-235-8619, and that'll get you to the Ethics Hotline, where we have various lawyers on staff who can assist you with any questions relating to ethics, including trust accounting. And so on that note, there's going to be a hefty dose here of disclaimers that I'm going to give throughout the presentation to reiterate that most of my advice is going to be focused on the rules regulating the Florida Bar. I can't really speak to the rules as they exist in other states, and to a limited degree, the ABA model rules are going to be pretty distinct from what you're going to see in Florida as well. Florida goes into a much higher degree of detail in our rules, and as you can see here, ABA model rule 1.15 for safekeeping property consists of five headings and a total, including the comment, of about two and a half pages. Now, when you're talking about Rule 4-1.15 of the rules regulating the Florida Bar, it's a single sentence that basically incorporates the trust accounting rules in the entirety of Chapter 5, which is Rules 5-1.1 and 5-1.2 of the rules regulating the Florida Bar. Now, instead of just about two and a half pages, you're talking about 20 headings and approximately 20 pages of rules and commentary. So there is a much greater degree of detail that you'll find in Florida's rules than what would be found in the model rules. Um, so first off, when do you need a trust account? And sorry, I'm gonna go through a bit of the basics here just to sort of lay the foundation. But anytime that you have property of a client or a third person in your possession in connection with a representation, it must be in a trust account. 
and it must be separate and apart from the lawyer's own property. Now, for the most part, that is going to be an IOTA or what we in Florida call an IOTA account, an interest on trust accounts account. And those are funds that are short term or nominal in value. And that's actually specifically defined in our rule. Now, the model rules do not necessarily go into that standard and discuss uh, IOTA accounts versus other types of trust accounts. But yeah, you are going to potentially have those clients where it seems like maybe they would have the ability to collect some beneficial interest if they had their own separate account that was dedicated solely to their needs. Because when you're talking about an IOTA account, basically that's a bunch of clients funds aggregated together and the interest on that account is actually going to go to the Florida Bar Foundation, which essentially then uses that money to provide free legal services to those in need. Versus, again, if you can get that beneficial interest for a client, it may be better for them to have their own separate account where then it accrues to their benefit, or if it's a transaction, maybe the benefit of the person they're engaging in that transaction with. Now, to be distinct here, a trust account is not the same, of course, as an operating or business account. And that's the account where the lawyer holds their own property, that of their law firm, and it should not include, again, any funds where a client or a third person has an interest. So in uh, the rules regulating the Florida Bar and Model Rule 1.15, uh, there are some similarities. First off, you're going to have to have, again, those funds held separately from the lawyer's own property and in an account where the lawyer's office is situated unless the client consents otherwise. Further, under both sets of rules, you have to notify clients and third persons promptly whenever you have property in which they have an interest and promptly deliver to the client or third person any funds that they're entitled to receive. Uh, further, and this includes again those third parties if they demand it, you have to render a full accounting of any property that you're holding in trust upon their demand. So yes, if you have a third party, say you get a personal injury case and you have those funds after the recovery in trust, and you have a medical provider who has an interest in those funds, well, if they demand an accounting regarding those funds that they have an interest in, yes, you need to provide it under that rule. Further, under both sets of rules, if ownership of the funds is disputed, you have to continue holding those funds or property in trust until that dispute is resolved. Now, this is just going to scratch the surface here, but of course, given the difference in the amount of detail provided, there are some pretty significant distinctions between ABA model rule 1.15 and Florida's rules. First off, ABA model rule does not necessarily specify the type of account that is required, but Florida's rules do explicitly define an eligible institution as well as what type of accounts can be used. And again, that has to be, as Jordan noted earlier, it's going to need to be a federally insured bank, savings and loan, or credit union. There's also, again, in the model rules, even though many states have IOTA or IOLTA or IOLA programs, there's actually no discussion of those programs in the model rules themselves. The requirement of an IOTA for short-term and nominal funds, again, does exist specifically in Florida. ABA model rule just generally defaults to accepted accounting practice and record-keeping rules established by law or court order versus Florida's rules go into a high degree of detail about exactly what accounting practices we would expect in Rule 5-1.2. The ABA model rules, again, only require that you retain those records for five years following the conclusion of the representation. Not a huge difference here, but Florida does specify six years following the conclusion of the representation. And again, 
similar to that IOTA process that was mentioned a moment ago, there are no specific naming and bank notification processes or protocols in the model rule. But in Florida's rules, you actually have to assure that the account includes the name of the lawyer or law firm and specifically has the words trust account, not just IOTA or IOLTA, but the words trust account in the name of the account. And yeah, you actually have to give the bank notice as well as basically permission or actually direction that they have to notify the Florida bar if there is a shortage and overdraw in that account. So for Florida, the IOTA rule specifically addressing those accounts is rule 5-1.1 subsection G. And again, that's interest on trust accounting program is what the abbreviation stands for. Again, that interest accrues to the Florida bar foundation, not to the Florida bar where I work, but rather the separate entity that manages those funds recovered from that interest. And yes, our rule specifically requires that it be the highest interest rate or dividend generally available to other account holders and customers. So that is actually something that Florida lawyers have to be aware of when they notify the bank and you know arrange for that trust account is that yes, if there is an interest rate that's generally available for that type of account that is higher than what they are getting on their IOTA, then they need to actually make sure that the bank gives them that higher rate. Further, again, that's aggregated accounts where the funds are short-term and nominal. Uh, there's a list of further considerations though for what that means in subsection G3 of the rule. So again, considerations about things like what is the level of liquidity that the client needs, or is there frankly any beneficial interest or benefit that the client would get from having their own account? And frankly, with interest rates being relatively low in the last decade or so, and maybe that'll change, you know, in the future, but really there hasn't been as much desire for clients to have their own separate account because interest rates really just have not been generating that much income for those clients. And our rule specifically provides that no lawyer will be charged with ethical impropriety or other breach of professional conduct based on the exercise of that lawyer's good faith judgment. So we're not looking for lawyers to be perfect investors. We understand that lawyers are generally not going to be financial professionals, that it's not something where they're going to be able to do a great deal of research or have any insider knowledge of what's going on at these banks or what would happen in the future relating to interest rates or what better investments might exist or risks they might have. Instead, again, it's the lawyer's good faith judgment, and the bar is going to rely heavily on that in determining whether or not a lawyer, and defer heavily to that good faith judgment, determining whether or not a lawyer has acted appropriately in deciding whether funds should be held in IOTA versus an individualized trust account for that client. So again, 5-1.1 sub G, an eligible institution specifically, and an interest or dividend bearing trust account are defined in the rule. And again, that's an FDIC-backed bank or savings and loan authorized to do business in Florida or an insured credit union authorized to do business in Florida. So again, as long as those funds are insured and the bank is authorized or credit union, as it were, we're authorized to do business in Florida. That's really what you're looking at for that IOTA account. And then again, for the accounts themselves, technically, it can include a daily financial institution repurchase agreement, which I'll get into a little bit more discussion of in a little bit here, or a money market fund. But if it's a repurchase agreement, it has to be fully collateralized by US government securities. And if it's a money market fund, it has to consist solely of US government securities. 
really the catch there though is that when you're talking about those repurchase agreements or money market funds do you have the level of liquidity that you need to meet your clients needs because again the funds explicitly under that rule have to be subject to withdrawal on request and without delay so Again, related note here to set some foundation, in Florida, we have a rule that specifically addresses uncollected funds, not uncleared funds, but rather uncollected funds and dispersing against those funds before they've been collected. Instead, the general standard is that before you can disperse funds from your trust account to a client, a third party, yourself, or anyone, they have to be, quote, deposited, finally settled, and credited to the lawyer's trust account unless one of a few exceptions applies. Those exceptions would include certified checks or cashier's checks, loan proceeds from a bank or institutional lender, bank checks, official checks, money orders, and credit union checks if the lawyer has a reasonable and prudent belief that the instrument will clear and be collected within a reasonable period of time, federal or state government checks, checks from another lawyer's trust account or a licensed real estate broker's trust account again if you have that reasonable and prudent belief as noted in the prior bullet and then finally checks issued by florida licensed insurance companies and essentially what the florida bar is saying in that rule is that those are examples of institutions or checks that you should be able to rely on in most circumstances to be clear and collected before you've actually got the funds in your account and that is one point to make very clear here is that when a bank says that your funds have cleared, that does not mean those funds are actually in the account. Rather, those funds are available for you to disperse against, usually is what they mean when they say cleared. And it can be a little bit more difficult, again, to get a clear answer sometimes about whether or not the funds are literally collected and in the account when you're dispersing. So that is something that lawyers need to be careful about. And one example, frankly, that we get calls about on a fairly regular basis is, these certified checks or bank checks that are coming from institutions, but actually are very convincing forgeries or frauds. And that is something that has gotten lawyers in trouble in Florida, because again, they are allowed to disperse against those, or at least they believe so because they believe they're legitimate. But then it gets the lawyer in trouble again, because even though they are allowed to disperse, well, it turns out it was a fraud. Now they've dispersed against funds that don't actually exist. And this is sort of retreading ground that Jordan already covered a bit earlier. Florida Ethics Opinion 72-37 is available on the Florida Bar's website. And the summary for that opinion notes that although there is no ethical requirement that a lawyer divide trust funds in order to ensure complete FDIC coverage, he, and I, I you know, the, the gendered term because, well, it was written back in 72, is nevertheless expected to act prudently and consider the deposit size in relation to the size and reputation of the financial institutions concerned. Now, the opinion, to give some context, was issued in 1972 when FDIC coverage was limited to $20,000. As Jordan noted earlier, FDIC coverage now is $250,000 per beneficiary. And so that means each owner with funds in the fiduciary account, not necessarily per account, but what lawyers need to keep in mind is that requires them to have very clear ledgers for exactly how much money each individual client or matter has in each account. This is something that I'll get to again when we talk about those repurchase agreements or sweep accounts as they're sometimes referred for a sort of broader umbrella term. But yeah, you're gonna have to be very careful in being able to show this is how much money this client had in this account 
so that that way they can actually get reimbursed by the FDIC. Finally, again, retreading a bit of ground from earlier, we don't have any disciplinary cases, certainly not in Florida, regarding a lawyer failing to have full FDIC coverage, but there is Bazinet v. Klug discussed earlier, and no, it was not considered to be malpractice when the lawyer had no knowledge that the bank was in danger of closing. So sweep accounts. There are certain limited types of sweep accounts that a lawyer can use for an IOTA in Florida. It's specifically those daily financial institution repurchase agreements that are fully collateralized by U.S. government securities or money market funds consisting solely of U.S. government securities. But really, there's a few catches that I would warn lawyers about before using one of these sweep accounts that they should be very careful of. One, this does not include everything that is referred to as a sweep account. There are various other types of sweep accounts that would not meet those standards that I just mentioned. Second, the funds have to be subject to withdrawal on request and without delay. So here, really, if there's anything about those daily uh, financial institution repurchase agreements that is going to hold up those funds, the first thing in the next morning when they're repurchased by that bank, well, then at that point, now you've got a problem because you're not satisfying your other obligations under the trust account rules. The other thing is that these accounts, the sweep accounts and their programs are normally used to maximize potential interest for investors or for uh, account holders. And when you're talking about an IOTA account, you know, sure, I bet that the Florida Bar Foundation would be thrilled to have additional interest on the accounts. But, you know, really, you're not doing your clients a favor if those funds are going to be held up because they're in a sweep account, you know, that daily repurchase agreement versus, you know, an IOTA that just stays there. Now, we have heard some programs offered by banks that say that they have better FDIC coverage, that those daily repurchase agreements are actually essentially sent out to other banks so that those clients then have $250,000 in all these various banks and the next morning, then it's back in the account for the IOTA. And therefore now you can say, okay, well now I have that full FDIC coverage. Again, the problem there that I would wanna be very careful about if you happen to work with one of those programs in one of those banks, make sure that again, it's proper liquidity. And second, have they really tracked exactly how much each account, if you're talking about an IOTA, not just each account, but each account beneficiary has when they send those funds out to those other institutions for that additional FDIC coverage. Because you can say, oh, well, yeah, we had $250,000 from this IOTA in this other bank overnight when it just happened to fail. And so now, yeah, we can get that reimbursed, but for who? If you don't have those ledgers that say exactly how much each client had in that other bank, then it may not be covered by the FDIC. So again, my recommendation, if you're looking into those accounts, proceed with caution, ask a lot of questions. That really covers basically everything that I have on these trust accounting questions and bank failures. Again, for our part, Florida's rules are very distinct from the model rules, but hopefully they give some guidance about at least what Florida is looking for and what other bars might be looking for. Um, Florida, again, does not require full FDIC coverage for all funds, and instead you should act in a prudent manner. So for our part, that means, yeah, there may be situations where that liquidity that's necessary to accomplish the client's interests is more important than assuring full FDIC coverage, especially if you have no reason to think that the bank in particular might fail. Again, document everything. We have very specific record keeping requirements, but I'm guessing that would be something that would benefit a lawyer in any state.
to make sure that they're adequately protecting their clients' interests. Finally, again, when you set up your trust accounts, ask the bank a lot of questions and insist on answers. Because if the banks can't answer those questions and don't seem familiar with the rules that you have to operate under, then they're not going to sufficiently protect you as a lawyer to assure that you can comply with your needs. Well, first of all, thank you. That was really excellent. I have some questions, but before we get to those, I wanted to just pause and check in with both Jordan and, and Paul to see if they had anything that they wanted to add in terms of what you just said. No, I thought that was a very thorough and excellent summary, Jonathan. And as you know, my team and I, we specialize in IOTA trust account management. And ultimately, I would just reemphasize the three steps that I talked about earlier is that it's important to work with the bank that he is familiar with the proper setup of those IOLA or IOLTA accounts, depending on the state that you're in. Number two, having the right process to be able to see balances across all your clients' sub-accounts and their balances. Number three, if you're outside of those FDIC coverages, then my recommendation would be to open additional accounts at another financial institution. So if you follow those three steps, I believe that would be acceptable by most, if not all the bars and probably puts you and your clients in a really good position. Thanks, Paul. Jordan, was there something you wanted to add to that? Just a thank you to Jonathan for talking about what's actually reasonable, right? In a perfect world, aspirationally, of course, I don't want anything to exceed that $250,000 threshold, but that's not really practicable depending on what area of law you do. So at the end of the day, it really does come down to, yes, I'm utilizing the FDIC insurance cap, but also I'm, I'm still acting prudently, even if I exceed that cap. Jonathan, you mentioned that the Florida Bar Ethics Opinion from a while back, which one of the factors that they said you should be looking at is the reputation of the financial institution. And to some degree, that, that kind of begs the question, I think. Is there any guidance that we can offer listeners as to what they should be looking for in terms of evaluating the reputation of a financial institution. I mean, Paul, you mentioned making sure that they're set up for handling IOLTA accounts and they understand the parameters around handling IOLTA accounts. How do you determine that about a bank? How do you determine that it's a bank that's the right bank for putting your money into? So that's very difficult to determine. Uh, but one thing I think that's fairly straightforward is to work with a bank that has extensive experience with IOLTA accounts. A lot of people come to us and say, look, we worked with the bank and they set up the wrong account. It wasn't an IOLTA account. It was just a trust account. And because fundamentally, I personally believe that one size fits all banking no longer works. And you really need to be specializing in certain industries to really understand all those intricacies that both Jordan and Jonathan talked about. And so it's important to work with the bank that understands how those accounts work and how to set them up because if the setup is not proper then that creates different set of issues so just ask around ask your practice management advisor at your bar ask some of your colleagues they can certainly always tell you who are some of the banks that really have experience to properly set those up it's a really good starting point jordan or jonathan any thoughts on that yeah i kind of want to go on a little bit of a rant <laughs> <laughs> because i'm an attorney right it's not the attorney's job to be a bank monitor right? In addition to the FDIC, there's numerous other federal agencies that regulate these financial institutions and these banks, 
for the purpose of guarding against bank failures, right? So this isn't my job to be monitoring necessarily. So I think it should, in my opinion, it should be a safe presumption that these federal agencies are doing their job and they're making reasonable efforts to safeguard these banks. That is their job. And they are better at it than I, a mere attorney. So it's like, there's only so much research, I think, that you can do. Obviously, what Paul said, dealing with a bank that understands lawyer trust accounts will be immensely helpful. I think a quick Google search, if you are looking at opening a bank, would be good because let's take Silicon Valley Bank, for instance, and that closed, you know, on a Friday, which usually that's what happens when banks fail. Typically, the FDIC steps in on a Friday at five. So that's failing. So maybe as the attorney, if I was going to go and open up, you know, and open up a bank account with SVB on the following Saturday, maybe I should be Googling prior and saying, oh, actually, that might not be a very good idea. You know, so I think Google is your friend. I think absolutely doing some, you know, preemptory investigation into your bank is great. Not using some sort of fly-by-night bank, maybe a bank that just opened and doesn't have any history or things like that. Then I'd be more concerned. But at the end of the day, I'm not some sort of bank monitor. I'm not a financial analyst. I have enough anxieties on my plate already, just practicing law. And so I think it's, you still need to be reasonable. You still need to be smart about it. But I don't think it needs to be this huge, all-encompassing thing that somehow you now need to become a banking expert too, in addition to practicing law. That's interesting. Maybe if you go back to that foreseeability issue that you were talking about earlier, it sounds like you're kind of saying it it's never really foreseeable uh for an attorney anyway or within an attorney's skill set well sometimes i mean in that us v howard case which granted that's the 1930s but he knew because there were several runs on the bank prior so he right. knew and he was going in and still depositing funds in there knowing that there had been runs on that bank prior so i think with that where it's completely and totally egregious then i understand he absolutely had knowledge of that yeah Jonathan, is there any indication in Florida of, is there any sort of pre-approval by the bar in Florida of banks? I mean, I practice in Massachusetts and we, in Massachusetts, we have an IOLTA, a committee that actually pre-approves banks and says, these banks are on our list of approved banks for IOLTA accounts. And there are some that are even designated, I think they're called premium banks or something, I think largely because they commit to paying a higher interest rate. But it raises an interesting question in my mind of whether if you're an attorney who is using a bank that has been pre-approved by the IOLTA committee, and then there is an issue with that bank, I mean, does that right there kind of resolve you of any potential liability? So Florida does not pre-approve or specifically have a list of approved banks for trust accounts. I apologize that I didn't mention that because that, that is something that's common in other jurisdictions is that they will actually have a list of specifically approved institutions that their bar or an organization similar to the Florida bar would offer them so that they know to go to those institutions. Now, you know, I can't speak for those other states about whether or not that would somehow insulate the lawyers who use those banks from any sort of uh, malpractice or professional disciplinary issues if one of those banks ended up failing. But I think to go along with what Jordan was saying a moment ago, we have all of these other institutions outside of just individual lawyers that are going to be tracking these banks. And if they can't see this coming, if they can't see a bank failure coming and act in advance, then I don't think it's likely that at least not the Florida bar is going to expect those lawyers as individuals to somehow see it coming. And frankly, 
if magically some lawyer in Florida did happen to predict every single bank failure that's upcoming, I'm guessing it's just as likely that they'd suddenly get a call from the SEC wondering what's going on, that they have some sort of knowledge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and to really just piggyback off of that. So generally, the FDIC does see things coming way sooner, obviously, than us, the general public, because they have supervisory authority and other uh, government regulators understand. So these things usually don't happen overnight. It's usually not a surprise to the government. To us, obviously, yes. To attorneys, especially, I have no idea what's going on. But for FDIC and regulators, they understand what's going on. So if a bank is about to fail or collapse, usually they'll hop in and they'll already have things set up. So usually happens at like 5 p.m. on a Friday. But I want to say SVB was maybe earlier on in the day on Friday, which was interesting. But typically, the FDIC already knows what's coming. They already go and they find an acquiring bank. And so the branches of the collapsed bank, they reopen Monday <laughs> as the new acquiring bank, right? So everything is back to normal on Monday, usually. I mean, y'all can feel free to correct me, but assuming your deposits were under that cap, everything is business as usual. So that's where kind of the problems come in. But typically the checks clear Monday, ATMs work on Monday. There's not a huge amount of disruption. It's usually the same employees from the collapsed bank that are now at the acquiring bank, done. The only issue with all of it, and what would be nice to know as an attorney that banks with that particular bank that just failed is, do I have any money that was over the cap? Because if you do, I think the next question is, what the heck do I do? So say I banked at Silicon Valley Bank, I found out on Friday this was happening. What do I do if I know for a fact that as an attorney, I have money and trust that's over that cap for a particular client? And that's where it really freaks me out because my thought processes, and at least what my advice would be is if it's over the limit, start moving your money as soon as possible. I, but but what but when you can't, uh, then yeah, what do you do? I mean, th that, that's the question, right? What happens when you can't? And a related question is, what are your communication obligations around that? I mean, at what point do you need to start telling your clients what's going on and having conversations with them? You mean how many panic attacks would I have within a 24-hour period for a bank there? <laughs> that, that, that's my question, yeah. yeah. Well, I feel like, you know, no-brainer, and I'm sure Jonathan would agree, but you're a fiduciary of that account. And I feel like as a fiduciary, you have to notify them immediately if you were banking with that particular bank that was failing. You might not have all the answers yet, and you can relay that to your client, but I think it's incumbent upon you to at least notify them. Yeah. And this is a little bit, you know, going into the other ethics rules. But yeah, I mean, you as a lawyer have a duty of communication that requires you to keep your client reasonably informed about the status of the representation and any circumstances that would require their informed consent. And so, yeah, if they have to potentially make a claim to the FDIC or whoever else, you know, then that's something that you're going to need to discuss with them fairly promptly uh, following your knowledge of any circumstance like that. And one thing, and maybe I'm misremembering or misheard here, but I will say in the case of SVB, I thought that the federal government had even committed to paying those balances in excess of that standard FDIC coverage. Um, and so again, that may be one of those things that it helps to protect lawyers as much as anything. Now, you certainly can't rely on it because no, it's not insurance. It is whether the government feels like it and providing that extra coverage. But that is something that I'm sure a lot of lawyers, if they had funds that were held in that bank for their clients, breathed a bit of a sigh of relief once they got that news. Because once you've exceeded that FDIC coverage limit of $250,000 per beneficiary, there's not really much to be done 
if the federal government doesn't agree unilaterally to cover that additional balance. Yeah. Yes, you potentially might have a claim for malpractice. It doesn't look like that's likely to be successful unless you somehow had warning and failed to act properly based on that warning. But at least there is some added security that provides, hopefully, that the federal government will consider uh, you know, extraordinary circumstances like that in, in a way that helps lawyers. Yeah, let me just jump in here, Jonathan. A couple of things. So particularly to SVB, uh, SVB was very unique in a sense that you basically had strong industry concentration and more than half of their depositors had were way over the 250 limit, right? Because you're dealing with venture-backed companies that raised millions of dollars. And so as a result, they were uncovered. And so uh, that was problematic in itself. That's number one. And number two, my recommendation is to be proactive, right? You know, Jordan, you kind of went through the steps. There were actually a couple of steps in between that we don't need to get into. But for those reasons, like my recommendation is, I believe majority of our listeners in solo and small firms, most are not over the $250,000 limits that we've talked about. And so I think it's good to be proactive. I think number one is make sure you're working with a financial institution that can properly set up and manage those accounts. I think it's very unreasonable for you as an attorney or for most folks to understand viability or failure. I mean, if you had to do that a month before SVB or signature, most people wouldn't see that coming, right? And so I think it's unreasonable to try to do that. And then number two, have process and a ledger like Jonathan advised to be able to understand the balances across all your clients, right? So you need to understand if you're over that limit. And in the event that you are, I would really recommend opening another bank account. And that way, you're not relying on a good grace of the government to make those things whole. In the case of SVB and Signature, that ended up being the case, which is great. And of course, a relief for everyone involved. But at the same time, just be proactive. If you're over, just set up new accounts with another financial institution. And there's plenty of way to figure out who specializes in catering to those accounts. Is there any reason to believe the federal government has set a precedent here for future failures in terms of providing relief beyond the uh, insured amounts? Hard to know, Bob, to be honest. Yeah. We've reached uh, pretty much the end of our time. I, I wonder if I could just go around to the three of you and ask if you have any kind of closing words of wisdom or advice for uh, attorneys on this topic before we bring it to a close. Jordan, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll just start with you. Do you want to recap or share any advice you have? Sure. I mean, again, my paranoia, I trust no one, including the government to pay me back or do anything right. I'm still paying my loans back all these years later. I trust nothing. <laughs> so really just be cautious, do your due diligence, do your research, but also know that the bar is not there to completely try to stab you through the heart if something happens to your bank that was completely unforeseen. Now, if you know that it's coming and if you see that it's coming, and you do nothing with your client's money that's in excess of that cap, then that's a problem for you. And you need to do some reevaluating. But otherwise, you're probably doing just fine. Thanks, Jordan. Jonathan, how about you? Yeah, again, it's about being reasonably prudent. That's what it comes down to. Now in Florida, yes, reasonably prudent means reading the trust accounting rules. It means Knowing all of those records that you have to do for your accounting otherwise and being careful about your transactions, but we're not going to stack on top of that you being your own independent financial investigator and regulator. That is not something that we're expecting of lawyers. 
but rather, again, just be prudent. If it seems like something is going on, or if it seems like, again, as Paul noted, that you can have those multiple accounts with various institutions without negatively affecting the interests of your clients in a way that reduces liquidity, by all means, do it. Protect your client's interests. And that can be a selling point for you as a lawyer in a law firm. When you start that representation, you can say, look, you know, yes, it may take an extra day for you to get your funds, or we do try and work around this, but we want to make sure that we are protecting you as fully as possible. And so here's why we have the arrangements the way we do. So again, yes, you need to have that liquidity, but it's also something that you can use as a selling point if you can manage that full FDIC coverage in a way that works. Jonathan, thank you very much. Paul, you get the last word. Well, a great discussion, really fantastic being here. Bob, I want to thank you for organizing this and our friends at Lowline, Jonathan, Jordan, always fantastic seeing you. And yes, I'll just briefly summarize, follow those three steps, work with financial institutions that have the experience. You can obviously do a Google search, but I would also recommend speaking with your bar or the practice management advisors and have the uh, software or the tools to be able to understand the balances across all your clients. I think that's very important. And if you're over, just set up additional accounts. It's very, very simple. And it's very unreasonable for you to try to figure out which bank is viable, which isn't. And, and I think that way you can provide a peace of mind for yourself and your clients and really not have too much anxiety about the banking system. Our industry, I think, is in a good place. Certainly, March was a stressful time for everyone involved, myself included. But I'm grateful that we are in a, in a much better position in April. We all can focus on servicing our mutual clients, and so should you. So thank you. was very glad to be here. Yeah, well, let me just underscore your thanks to all three of you for participating in this panel and to Lawline for hosting us and helping us organize this today. Thanks a lot. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry, with almost five stars and over 1,000 verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.